Hello, 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 guys! Welcome to this new edition of Mind Podcast. Yes, I know it's been a three-four week break between our last episode, but I was traveling uh, across India, so and then that trip got extended. So, उसकी वजह से podcast नहीं हो पाया. But here we are back. And uh, thanks for all the love you've been showing, all the mind makers videos that we've been doing, all the short videos. Please keep, you know, sending your comments and feedback. But together, I have uh, our returning champion, lawyer Nikhil Mehra, back with us, our friend at Mind Podcast, and someone whose perspective on current affairs, uh, various issues, I always look forward to. So, welcome to Mind Podcast, Nikhil. Thank you, Arun. Thank you. Great to be here again. You've got to promise me to squeeze in some cricket somehow. Huh? Oh, oh, absolutely, we will. No, no, no. Okay, so um, here's how the pod- podcast is going to be. We're going to talk about the current, uh, uh, various current affairs issues, including what happened to Salman Rushdie in the next 30-35 minutes, and then the last 10-15 minutes, we'll keep it absolutely about cricket. So you, um, <laughs> we'll do that, and we'll end with recommendations. But um, you know, uh, uh, initially, so I thought, K, uh, Nikhil, since we're going to talk about, you know. फ्रीडम ऑफ एक्सप्रेशन एंड लिटरेचर एंड ऑल दिस कि वो पायदा नहीं दे दो कि विशेषज्ञ आज बोलने वाले हैं बिकॉज इट सीम्स लाइक द एक्सपर्ट्स ऑन फ्रीडम ऑफ एक्सप्रेशन इन द वर्ल्ड हैव सीज्ड टू एग्जिस्ट राइट लाइक दैट्स दैट्स हाउ सैड एंड कंट्राइव्ड द डिबेट um has become so you know for people who've been living under a rock or have been hiding somewhere or or have been on vacation i'll just give you a perspective of what happened um on on 12th august uh, about 4 5 5 days ago um uh, a man called hadi mathar stabbed uh, indian born british american novelist uh, salman rushdie multiple times he was about to give a public lecture at the chatrakwa institute in uh, chatrakwa new york it's like a uh, <clears throat> essentially a small town which is on the you know which is on the outskirts it's 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 uh, it's on the east west side of new york the extreme west it's a very small community and everything and um, the reason i amplify that is that salman rushdie had you know everyone knows about what happened in 1989 when he wrote the satanic verses and uh, the fatwa issued by atullah khomeini before that there was the book ban in india um and we will we'll get into that in in the debate but it's been 30 plus years more than three decades since that and that fatwa or what the events of 1988 89 still continue to be behind mr rashdi and uh, i think he just taken up american citizenship a few years ago and a few years ago he started leading somewhat of a normal life but as we found out unfortunately it's like he was you know there was nothing normal about this and stuff and there was always a moving target on his back unfortunately because of what had happened and this curiously attack was carried out by someone who's not even born there who's not even lived through that so you know victim of propaganda or what we'll we'll, we'll discuss that but a uh, nikhil initial thoughts right like when we get into the whole freedom of expression and uh, debate and reactions over salman rushdie and we'll we'll get into a few journalists and what they have said or what they have omitted what are your initial thoughts like will mr after all these years we thought mr rashdie was finally going towards a normal life and it seems like there is nothing called a normal life now yeah i mean the the long arc of fundamentalist memory of extremist memory he got caught on the far end of it i mean it, it's an incredible thing listen i remember reading a few years ago that there was some sort of tacit understanding with iran that the fatwa was no longer operative i don't know i, I remember reading this a few years ago. i i'd not sort of done the research before this and so i thought you know that may be the reason why he himself must have been thinking that i'm kind of sort of in the clear now but obviously they've sort of ramped it up again i do want to make one point this doesn't seem to be a case of you know a generally uh incited angry muslim who was suddenly exposed to the idea i to the ideas that were considered blasphemous that that salman rushdie had put in the book but it does look like there's a geopolitical setting to this which is that iran put out a number of hits within american borders uh to persons that it considered hostile to its interests including john bolton and salman rushdie 
So I think there may be more of a geopolitical context to this, but the problem is this. It's very easy to find a nut. Hmm. Right? It's very easy to find one crazy man. And sadly, when it comes to Islam, it's easiest. That's the truth. Right? I, I'm not saying that there aren't crazy uh, fundamentalists on, on all religious fronts, but there is barely mention of this kind of incident and event in the context of other religions in the way in which this happened. The Islamic answer to this is they have constantly been pummeled militarily by other religions. So they look at American intervention or Israeli presence as really religious wars. You may be deeming them to be in the context of superpowers and countries and in the context of, of current geopolitics, but they look at it in, in, in the civilizational sense of uh, religious battles again. Right? So that's where I think the world is. We hoped it had moved on. It has not moved on quite clearly. Uh, you know, you would have thought that this would have come from someone in Afghanistan or some some wacko in Syria who would have proposed this or some kind of Al-Qaeda remnant or, or someone influenced by ISIS. You know, there have been ISIS attacks in the States in the past. But for a regime to do it, uh, that's, that's, that's the scariest implication in all. Yeah, no, I, no, I'll, I'll bring you, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm I made Let's sort of be clear. We're seeing a series of the same events in India. Not one, a series of them. Before Nupur Sharma's comments, after Nupur Sharma's comments. Right? There is no faith in freedom of speech on that side. This is their idea of a reasonable restriction. It is perfectly reasonable in the face of blasphemy to kill a person. No, that is the reasonableness standard that is set. Let's be crystal clear about that. Here is what's shocking in all this, right? The reason I mentioned is when you just have to look at the responses to what, when the fatwa was announced in 1989 or 89, and you know, many people on the media side, how they came out strongly in support of Mr. Rajdi. You would think that in a post, you know, in a social media generation, you will find more and more journalists. You will find more and more, you know, think tanks, institutions actually coming out in support of Mr. Rajdi. It's actually been the other way. Like there have been certain journalists who have delete, deleted their tweets. I think Rana, you've deleted a tweet. She expressed, she expressed Mr. Rajdi. I hope she gets well soon and things like that. And all these people are considered to be fighting, uh, you know, uh, powers and things like that in the American media. I think even in US, when it comes to the freedom of speech of Mr. Rajdi, people are either, you know, uh, beating around the bush or not, not talking about why Mr. Rashdi was attacked. He was attacked because there was a fatwa issued on his back because he was, you know, deemed uh, attacked by, he was attacked by an Islamist mob in 1989. And that continues. And it seems like even that questioning is gone. Listen, I, I don't know what your memory of this is. I have a suspicion you're a bit younger than me, so you don't remember this time. I remember it very distinctly, even though I was very young. I was about 10 years old when this ban came. I read this book when I think I was 14 or something, 14 mm. or 15. The whole, like, this was a huge point of conversation at that time. And I'm sorry, you may be thinking there was support. There were a lot of people, a lot of intelligentsia, a lot of sort of very educated people in India who said, yeah, the ban is perfectly fine. We can't have... Uh, you know, no, no I, I didn't mean India. I meant, I meant in the US. I, wanted to, I just wanted to make the point. See, yeah. ignore Rana you because Rana you playing a very hard game. Her game is a yeah. very tough game. It's very yeah. tough being an Islamist in a liberal's clothing, right? So it's a very tough game where you have to be able to appease to those high principles, those high moral principles of liberalism. But in the yeah. end, the interests that you appease are actually Islamist yeah. interests. So you have a really difficult tightrope to walk at times. So, yeah. you know, like I, I, she's blocked me a long time ago because obviously I just, I don't come, suffer the same hypocrisy and I don't suffer fools. So there was always going to be a point of clash. But yeah. she apparently tweeted only to say, I hope Salman Rushdie recovers. Yeah. Right. And she was browbeaten by hardcore Islamists saying, how can you even pray for the recovery of a blasphemy? Right? This is more about the ideology at play and less about Rana Ayub. So no, you know, you're, looking at, you're looking at it in terms of Rana Ayub's courage of her convictions. No, it's not about her courage of conviction. 
it's about the ideology that confronts sir that faces up let me be crystal clear today i am scared a little bit to really speak out about these sort of blasphemous events because i've seen the number of beheadings that's happened in india yeah mm. let's be mm. crystal clear about all of this stuff and that's and you know, that's that's you a, that's you a, have a tiny point. muslim population in america we're talking about a population which is sub 2% maybe around 1% sub 2% in in america at this moment in time right mm. so these fears are not substantiated in the american liberal mind is it yeah they will become substantiated when these numbers rise when these percentages change I, I think it's more than more than even that. I think it's what constituted is even debate over freedom of expression, freedom of speech in America. That that itself is evolving as well. Because after after the Salman Rushdie debate, I mean, the only person I think who's spoken out. I mean, there have been various people who have spoken well, out. But in fairness, I have seen a lot of. I I put out a tweet saying I've seen a lot of performative, sometimes heartfelt. Uh, odes being written to Salman Rushdie, but to me, Salman Rushdie is a low-lying fruit in the defense of freedom of speech. I was Everything just going to say that. for a long time. It's fine. You can defend this if you really defend the right. Go defend an opposer. Hmm. You won't, and you know why you won't. You may well want to doctrinally, but you have fear. That's the truth, right? No, no, that that in India you simply don't have the state capacity to enforce that freedom of speech. Well, not even not even that. Do you? even people who want to see freedom of speech is also on both sides right even if people want to speak out in favor of one they would want do they want only one sided freedom of speech right they can speak out in favor of what they also will have to take the other side right what i'm one saying one sided one sided is never freedom of speech exactly one-sided that's what i'm saying one sided is not called freedom of speech one sided is called that's not even yeah. exercising a liberty that's a power and, and you're absolutely right about sarma Yeah, and you're right about Salman Rushdie being low lying, low hanging fruit because you know he thirty years, thirty five years, purana issue hai. And for the for the people on the left, Salman Rushdie's politics actually sort of aligns with them. So I've I've said this many times, right? Like one doesn't have to agree with his prose and his politics to defend his right to speech. And I mean, I don't know how many times you have to uh, reinforce that. That you know, a lot of people were like, oh, but Salman Rushdie said this about India, and this. I was like, I don't care. I don't. I I will disagree with him on you know if he has an uninformed opinion of or or if I think it's an incorrect opinion on India, but that doesn't mean that I uh, sort of you know don't talk about the attack that happened on him and 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 that's and and what you said right that for the people on the left it's very easy to defend Salman Rushdie because he aligns with them on most issues yeah, except you know this one. What this worldview is Adil. A, a, hmm. a, for a lot of the west india was exotic because within indian hmm. democracy what to had was a full play of religion hmm. right uh, and i'm not saying it was only of islam or only of hinduism or only of christianity religion was preserved within the indian democratic structure as the principal superstructure around which you could evolve life your food choices were based on religion so therefore laws relating to food had to be around religion your clothes choices were sometimes around religion your uh, uh, holidays are around religion your observances are around religion your symbols of, of what you wear day to day are around religion right as india is modernizing it wants to move away from these overt expressions right so what is happening along with that is hinduism is asserting itself i think more than in the past but hinduism is also regressing is also withdrawing its symbols in a much more aggressive manner than it used to in the past so you don't want to be on the streets about absolutely everything you don't want these symbols everywhere nationalistic symbols are starting to replace right and nationalism is a very scary word in the west because they've suffered the worst of nationalism they don't understand that nationalism in the eastern context has never had the same problems that nationalism has had in europe Right, because their borders were never clearly defined their lines were never clearly defined so their wars were always around the concept of nationhood whereas our mm-hmm. notion of nationhood in this country and in the east in general have been much more benign yeah right so with, with that sort of replacement they look at india now and look at it and say right suddenly you can't wear a hijab you know uh, and suddenly there are anti conversion laws and they're being enforced suddenly there's a ghar wapsi happening what the hell is going on does this mean so religion isn't having its full play like it used to 
right? Mm -hmm. And so this is not the India they recognize. Whereas mm -hmm. we should be as Indians pushing forward and saying, yes, we want religion to not have its full play, right? When I say this, I am quite cognizant of the fact, and I contest this all the time with hardline Hindus, that your religious sensitive, sensitive, sensitivities also need to be shut down and put into your own homes. They can't be brought out into the public sphere all the time the way you are. <laughs> so, but, but that is being replaced by national symbols, right? And mm. they don't. So, so this is, it's a very it's a very predictable critique. It's a very easy critique, and it's an ahistoric critique. And if you ever want to answer a Salman Rushdie critique to that, you literally have to pick up Naipaul and answer him with that. <laughs> it's it's you know I think Naipaul and Salman Rushdie is a perfect comparison because both have a, a sort of a similar standing in the literary circuit in the West and almost are two sides of different views on India or how to interpret Indian you know uh, recent history. But I think what you said is I think a fantastic term. This is not the India they recognize, right? It doesn't mean that this is the India that was. I think that the India that has emerged, you know, in the last few decades or in the last few years was uh, an India whose sentiment had sort of been subdued, you know, forcibly not sort of, you know, they did not have adequate representation at national stage within, you know, with people, with leaders and so forth. And that is the India that's coming forward. And and so I was actually listening to a, 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 a podcast and I'm not going to name that journalist because, you know, I don't want to give him publicity, but he is completely essentially a disillusioned person and has been ranting about Modi and uh, BJP for a long time. And he has come up to this conclusion in the last two years that instead of uh, countering ideas, you have to blame the voters. The voters are only at fault. He's like, oh, I was like, wow. So this is exactly why Mr. Modi will always win. That now, you know, rather you know, than you know coming up with ideas. You know why yeah. that happens? It happens because it is... See, if you try to break down every answer in, the, in terms of ideology and ideology only, this is how you talk. Right mm. or elections? Here, is, here, here are the numbers. The first thing when you say you have to blame the voters, all right, blame the voters. No problem, mm. blame the voters. But first, set out a profile for the voters, and please mm. don't be so dull so as to just say Hindu voters and that's it. I don't look beyond that. Yeah, right. You've got to look beyond that. Why? Because the BJP, even in 2014, during Modi's first majority, was mm. still not a party capable of obtaining rural votes. Absolutely agree. Five years of whatever programs he conducted and frankly, people like me have been criticizing them saying you're just too socialist. Your, your government spending on this stuff is so high and your control over the economy on the private side is so still so strong, right? This has been my critique. But what is the effect? The rural vote of the BJP jumps by 12% in 2019. Even higher mm -hmm. actually. Now I the rural voter, the rural voter is not voting Mandir Masjid. The rural voter is simply voting pa pa Pani, Bijli, Ghar, etc. Now you keep coming up with these critiques from the Congress and its, its policy analysts and policy wonks saying, oh, you know, putting one pole doesn't mean that you brought electricity to that village. Fair enough. You may be right in your, in your, in your actual critique of the facts, but there's a point of hope and Modi represents hope to these people. What, what that hope is, you know, that kind of thing. So even if you want to blame the voter, are you now going to blame the voter for self-interest that pertains to actual obtaining of public goods, public goods that they should have obtained a long time ago during independent India's history, which they're only receiving after 75 years. Are you going to actually blame them for that? Because the problem for most of these people is they're also left-wing on economics. Yeah, right? absolutely. So they would otherwise be praising to the skies. I mean, they will take a policy like Manrega Right, because it increases wages and say, wow, this is phenomenal. But they will not look at a jam and say, this is good. <laughs> Whereas Manrega by itself was leaky without jam. And jam, when you add it in, when you add in, add in that Jandhan and Aadhaar and all of that, you have actually promoted more entrepreneurship in the second tier, third tier towns and rural areas. And you have actually provided public goods that did not exist prior, right? So that's what voters, that's the vote share increment. That's what it's mm. talking about. Mm. That's what it's talking about. The other, other thing I want to talk to you about, they say, blame the voters, fine, blame the voters. Which voters are you going to blame? 
right? Because all of these people will also proudly wear on their badge, on their on their sleeve, that they're feminists. The Bihar election last time around was one of the tightest elections in a long time, right? If you look at the analysis in the Bihar election, Modi literally wins that election after 4 p.m., 5 p.m. on every voting day. Why? Because rural women come out to vote. Yes. Now, if you're a feminist and you believe women can make their own choices, would you not be looking at this trend and saying there's something going on which is positive, not negative, positive? Absolutely. Right? And you look and there is data. Sorry, go, no, no, finish your point. No, 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 no. I was going to add to that. And uh, before that, that there is data. We did a podcast with Nalin Mehta on this, who has written a fabulous book on the new BJP. And he said there's data that, you know, people like Samajwadi Party or RJD and stuff, the men, the rural men have voted more for those parties and rural women have actually voted more for the BJP. So if you are a feminist, you would actually, you know, I remember Pranav Roy used to have these debates where he said, oh, if the men, more men come out and vote, BJP will win. Now they don't say that if more rural women come out and vote, the BJP is more likely to win, right? Because that puts the whole narrative uh, in a tailspin because the, the, no, 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 the, the narrative goes in a tailspin first and foremost, because you had the best narrative that they used to possess was you're an upper caste party or a Brahmin Baniya party that is dead. Hmm. Right? So the caste, yeah. caste used to be the highest point of morality within Indian commentary, right? That if hmm. something is something is imbalancing the caste equation or yeah. is retaining the old imbalance of caste equations, that is inherently bad. And therefore the BJP was bad because it was an upper caste party. Now that's been decimated. Dalit vote is is, is maximum. The SCST vote is maximum to the BJP. What are you going to say now? Absolutely. Absolutely. So blame the voter. Blame the voter is a great game to play, but you will lose that game. You will lose If you yes. do a proper profile check of the voter, you will lose that game. No, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, the la the lazy analysis is like, okay, uh, BJP is a party of the North and the West, but then conveniently ignore Karnataka and Telangana, <laughs> which have given them more than 30 Lok Sabha seats, which is more than 10% no, of what this, this, this North and the West is rubbish. Just just look at Modi's popularity in the Northeast, your seven sisters. Yeah, absolutely. After tw out of 25 Prime Minister that has brought the Northeast front and front and center into focus as an integral part of India like this man. You've got to be joking with me, North and West, North and West. Of course, North no, and West, I, there are a huge amount of seats there. North and West matters, yeah. But the Northeast is voting for him the way it's never before. No, no. And, and the funniest thing is North and West, like Bengal, Odisha, Telangana, Karnataka and Northeast. If you just add those five, that, that's close to 100 seats that BJP NDA won last time. There and I'm go. like, what are you saying? Like, you know, or at least close to 80 or 90. My point being, so, you know, this is this is the whole contrived debate. But just to sort of bring, you know, take take a step back and we'll get into India in one second. I want to bring one point back on Rushdie, the whole debate we made. And um, uh, the, the, the whole discussion about whether, whether you know, what you said that he's about leading a normal life and so, so forth. Now, in, in 1998, they said that... The, the government of Iran tried to step away from the fatwa. And then in 2017, they said, no, no, it's not been revoked and things like that. But you said that, like we were talking that the whole debate around US was, he, yes, you know, now this will not be enforced. I think what shocked a lot of Americans and what shocked a lot of people is where this attack happened. Right? It was not like he was making some controversial speech in somewhere or uh, there was a problem. Tell me why it shocked them. Why did that shock them? Please tell me this because it's not as if Islamist attacks have not happened on American soil in the recent past. There is absolutely, but there is somewhat of a uh, I, I, I'm, a I'm struggling for a right word. But there is, There's an attack of some sort or the other in America all the bloody time. I don't know why they get surprised by the character of one attack over the other. I think, I think there the, the was it. All the time. I firmly, you know, I, 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 I lived in America for six years in mm, my twenties, mm. right? Mm. Uh, mid twenties to my early thirties. I lived in the States. I lived in the mm. States when I was a kid. I, I studied, mm. I was in Seattle for three years. Mm. Uh, and I, I genuinely felt that mm. I was exposed to more violent thoughts, more aggressive <laughs> sort of behavior 
being normalized in the US than I am in any other society. No, I mean, yes, I'm not, I'm not, I would not deny that at all. No, but I think let, me, is... let me add to that. Let me add to that. Delhi is sort of North India has a problem as well. There's a genuine problem with aggression being lauded. It's also softening. My view is it's softening. Hmm. Uh, no, it, it, it could, it, it could be. I'm not, I'm not entirely uh, uh, denying that. Um, that phenomenon. I think the shock was somehow because there was this very arrogant attitude towards ki ye to bhai, you know, first of all, I hate this term that they use in US first world, third world. But there was this attitudinal problem where a lot of people were like, ki ye to bhai, third world problems. Hai. Aisa US mein nahi ho sakta, you know, stabbing over things like this. But it happened. And that's so I think I, I think the, the the issue here is that uh, there is sort of a uh, the American arrogance case. This can't happen on American shows. Hereby, not looking at the violent attacks that have taken place in U.S. You know, be it gun violence or be it other violence. And there was and a guy sitting on top of a high high rise building in Las Vegas shooting into the open crowd. What are they talking yeah. about? There isn't a kind of shooting incident that doesn't happen in America. It's just that yeah, they feel like these are these are white guys or even black people, even black violence. Like these are ours. We get this because this is within our society. They don't hmm. get the other thing that's happened because they still maybe haven't internalized that there is violence from other communities as well. Hmm. They internalize it over time and then they'll, they'll realize that this is also one of ours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, and 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 how to deal with it, right? I think the the all the uh, the 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 real problem is they don't know how to deal with the whole thing, right? Because initially, see, like, see, I'll, I'll tell you why you can't. I'll tell you why you can't. There is mm -hmm. a certain othering based on ideology. It's actually a logical othering, right? Mm -hmm. You remember the Boston shootings, mm -hmm. Boston bombing, the marathon, marathon. The, the Boston marathon, marathon bombing, right? Right. Mm -hmm. That was also Islamist. That was a hmm. fundamentalist Islamist as well, right? Hmm. Now, they looked at that immediately as an act of terror. Hmm. White violence, lone, lone wolf violence, black on black violence or black, uh, black lone wolf gun violence. They don't hmm. look at acts of terror. Those are domestic hmm. problems. They see them as domestic problems. They see, they understand them better because they see those arising from within their society. What this is, for example, what, what what the attack on Salman Rushdie or the Boston bombings or that one that happened in Miami just before while the Trump first election campaign was going on, I think 2016 or something. You know, these they see as outside ideologies penetrating their society, hmm. right? And that comes back to the idea that they they have a very small Muslim population, so they've not seen Islamic violence, and, and for that matter, let me not let me. So there is a let me even it out by saying there's another trend that's emerging, right? They look at caste, for example, as an outsider problem, mm. right? In caste amongst Hindus. But that's starting to emerge through stories within uh, San Francisco, within the Bay Area, within uh, Silicon <laughs> mm. Valley, right? Eventually, once they have enough understanding of it and they have enough uh, statistical data on it, because they are at least fair in being precise. They will mm. internalize mm. it and realize this is also one of our problems. That's yeah. why the shock for Hadi Mother, right? That, that is why the shock for this guy. But yeah. uh, once they've internalized that these things do happen in the US, there are populations where this, these things are motivations. There are causes for motivations mm. for this kind of violence. They will internalize and realize there's, there's no reason to be shocked because, you know, this is as normal as a white man going nuts with a gun in his hand, with an AR-15 mm. in his hand. No, and uh, you actually raised a very important point about the whole caste debate, right? Because one, I, I read this uh, 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 excellent analysis this morning that one one of these days when the U.S. Uh, academics or uh, the powers to be actually sit and analyze caste in companies and stuff, they'll also realize that the caste bias in the academia that is preparing this report and how unrepresented it is in the academic level is like that's when I want to see what do a lot of Indian Indian American academics who are jumping up and down they about have this. An academic answer for that. That is subaltern academia. You can't huh. you can't mix up the voice of the of the oppressed. Hmm. Right? The oppressed get to have a soul voice. That's they already but, but have a structural answer for that. 
they, they do but it won't work at at that level if america actually internalizes this like what you said but we, but we'll have to say that's well, that's see, another see, you know, esg is going to get bigger and bigger let's see if cast becomes one of the one of the totems on which esg comes to rest if it does yeah. then you know let's see i wouldn't yeah, and then, and indian americans let's see what positions they take because again there is the, another complex uh, ideology to that like if you talk about it's not just an issue with the hindu americans right there is also the sikh american communities because there is uh, casteism that you know happens there too right so what do you do do you just limit it to hindus or do you talk about that because a lot of uh, a lot I, of them I, I, you you've lived there a lot longer i wanted to ask you i did not in whatever indian american communities i saw in america right and let's be crystal clear my experience was limited to seattle mm -hmm. san francisco and new york new york mm -hmm. new jersey area mm -hmm. these are at least two of these actually all three or four are fairly indian centric like there's large mm -hmm. indian american populations new york new jersey san francisco even seattle because of boeing as a reasonable amount of indian population mm -hmm. right? I had no concept of caste when I interacted with these people. Not because, yeah. obviously, I have that advantage that I would be at sight and by my name uh, assumed to be upper caste, but I didn't see it in their own interactions either. Right? I just no, it isn't. So, so I haven't seen it either, and my my experience has been in the southern part of United States, you know, Texas uh, area, and then I've been quite a bit to you know the eastern side or the western side, and I haven't seen. I have friends across. I think the whole discussion is not even about whether it exists between people to people contact. They just want to somehow make it in the IT field, in the software field, and somehow go. That is the sole sort of target. That's why you see Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and that being sort of uh, um, uh, targeted. They're not talking about other no, companies. No, hang on, hang on. Is, is this possibly because of Indian domination there right now? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Every absolutely. single major Silicon, every major Silicon Valley company, the top guy is an Indian. Yeah. Well, not even the top domination. See, you know, you in the last three or four years, a lot of people have taken up managerial positions in Apple and so forth. So, you know, it could be a result of that. There could be there could be multiple multiple factors, uh, you know, within that. So uh, not just that. There is another thing you're discounting: uh, academic admissions, right? Because Indian Americans had a disproportionate admission into you know Ivy League universities. So now they are trying to sort of do that. That oh, you have to distribute even amongst Indian Americans, you have to have a, a proportionate distribution about caste and things like that. That is the ultimate goal. That that's what they are trying to do, and it's not going to work. Well, it may work. It may not work. I don't know. But I do notice one thing: uh, hmm. the assault, if you may want to call it that, on Indian Americans hmm. seems to be in academic work. And this mm. academic attempt, possibly mm. even tending towards legislative attempt. Mm. Uh, but unlike, say, Asian Americans who are actually facing street violence, man, mm. Mm. I mean, there's no dearth of actual physical violence against Asian Americans on the streets. You know, there have been uh, mm. more than a few cases now, where which are pure right. racial hatred cases, and a lot mm. of them are for some reason black on Asians. Black men assaulting Asian, Asian Asian American men, right? And I don't. I, it's been. I got it. I understood it was happening during COVID. That was one part of it. But it's still, sort of continuing. So what that kind of indicates to me is that academia may be attempting to create sort of this uh, oppressor oppressed narrative and import it from India into and, and import sort of Indian structures and apply them across American Indian American communities in the U.S. But that has not filtered through to the street, that idea, because possibly the street doesn't see it, right? But the mm -hmm. street sees something problematic with Asian Americans. It's very distressing to see because Asian Americans are in another phenomenally successful and peaceful community. Yeah. You don't get Asian American shooters and killers. You don't get Indian American shooters and killers. That stuff doesn't happen, right? But you get them dominating at the top. And maybe that's where this sort of ache is coming because Wokeism or, or, or sort of what is happening in terms of this open talk socialism, it is a, 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 a total power play for redistribution, hmm. right? So you need Absolutely. to redistribute. 
And if you need to redistribute, you need to take from the haves. And these are the haves. The problem with their original theories, as they stood, mm. was you can't look at an Asian American or an Indian American and try to discount them as minorities. Because now you sort of start redefining minorities and say, well, for the academic field, they are not minorities. For admissions purposes, they are not minorities. For the number of visas that are being issued, they are not minorities, right? Because Indian American company, American companies want Indian workers. There's just no dispute in yeah. that. That's why the number of H-1Bs that get allocated to India is disproportionately high. It's insanely high. I mean, you know, yeah. that, that, that was a controversy. No, but that no, but that is also a factor of how many Indian American students come, right? So the H one Bs are actually directly proportional to that, and uh, and the other problem with in, so that's another problem, right? So Indian Americans get the H one Bs, but the process from H yeah, one so to green card. Once you once you've decided you need to redistribute, and you need to take hmm. from these guys, you can't do it in your original frameworks of calling them minorities or of because they are minorities in your original frameworks. They are immigrants in your original framework. So you, you play up these immigrant stories, right? So then you're stuck mm. because the successful immigrant stories would be Indian Americans, would be Asian Americans. So how do you take from them eventually? How do you take mm. from them? And I think importing this idea of caste, maybe one mm. way of saying, all right, let's start depriving you as well. Where unfortunately, and where the political divide is and where Indian Americans are sort of getting screwed is if there is there are Republicans in power, the process from there, say from there, from there to go to from a work visa to a green card, that gets a little difficult. And, you know, what Trump did with H1 and H4 uh, laws when he was in power, that was usually problematic. When the Democrats come to power, this discussion start at an academic level. They have no issues with H1 to green cards or H4 to green cards and so forth. So Indian Americans themselves have to find a narrative and have find a voice. The, the, the difference is they have not spoken up as a community because what activism ka instinct have been in, right? Pe it's the, the, the whole concept between Indian Americans here is eight to five, kaam karo, ghar jao, have a house in the suburbs and, you know, retire once you've done your, you know, 30, 40 years in service. No, right? there is no in fact, whatever Indian American activism I've seen, it actually is to attack the community. That's what I've seen. <laughs> Yes, and and there is a there is a bit of a confusion also within in Indians in India in terms of how to approach this right. So there are two communities here. There are the Indian American community and there is the Hindu American community. So I would count myself in the former community because I do relate to a lot more issues in India. I talk about India. I talk about politics in India. I actually vote in India, right? Um, but there is people who are born and raised over here, born to Indian parents. And they are Hindus, they're practicing Hindus. So you can call them Indian Americans, but essentially they're American citizens who have, you know, ties to India and are, you know, practice Hinduism and stuff. And their approach, they, are, they don't care about what election or what issues are happening in India, right? So I think there are also has to be a multi-sided approach in how Indians talk, you know, expect certain things. So Indian Americans will take positions that are pro-India, right? And uh, because their knowledge of India, Hindu Americans. That's, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. I see what you mean because I think then what what flows from that is that India as a country will possibly stand in defense of what you call Indian Americans and possibly yes. not of Hindu Americans because Hindu yes. Americans and, are. Fighting within the rubric of that society itself, they are internalized completely, and they are—they have chosen their own narrative there. No, and that's how it should be, right? They're born and raised here. I don't blame yeah, them. Yeah, like, absolutely. why should you confuse the kids? So, I mean, I, I, and I—I I, I don't mean it as a point of differentiation or you know even for. It's just it's the reality right there are two realities of of america and 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 it's fine i think both are both are acceptable realities but when people deal with one or the either they just need to know what perspective is coming so you cannot confuse support of a karan johar movie in india or rrr getting a huge blockbuster opening in america to be like are we will we will hope that they will also stand by india's uh, strong stance about buying russian oil there are two yeah. completely different things. No, no, two completely different things, right? So uh, you will find, yeah, yeah. But but I, I unfortunately I find a lot of confusion in you know in the uh, discussions and stuff. But you know um, we'll we'll have to expand this at a later time. We are getting to the last 15-20 minutes, and as I promised our viewers and Nikhil, we'll we'll switch gears and go towards our favorite sport, cricket.
and talk a little bit about that. One thing before Nikhil, we get into cricket is I am amazed by the rise of one man in list A cricket. His name is Chiteshwar Pujara. I don't know if you've seen the yeah, batting seen that he's been doing. I've seen it. Well, listen, I, I saw all that and my first reaction, how shit is county cricket, man? How bad was the... Yeah, that, that, I was just going to tell you that. <laughs> hey, must be, like, uh, you, you remember the 90s, we used to call them pie chuckers. Must be fucking pie chuckers all over the place. It was, he's batting at 170 strike rate at times. It's ridiculous. Please, I'm sorry. I don't buy it. I don't. Yeah, exactly. Really small. No, it's actually not not very small. Also, where he's playing, but it's just the bowling. I'm sorry. I think I think I just don't buy it. I find it very hard. I know. I was like, I was saying 173, 150 balls and 130 balls, and I'm like, hey, what is happening? Yeah, 174 or 131. Man, but I still think I still think he might be a better number three for India and ODIs than Virat Kohli right now. No, no, and no, no. If we're, uh, no, just I'm no, no. I'm saying it facetiously. And, I don't know. But, no, no, no. I, I'm sorry. You may be saying it facetiously, but because of Virat's situation, I have to actually address it seriously because this is not a laughable proposition anymore. You know, it's just not as yeah. laughable. It's not a valid proposition, but it's yeah. not a laughable proposition anymore. Hmm. So, but but coming coming back to coming no, back to cricket. No right? than all of this, all of this doesn't matter. I I I have a genuine fear. Cricket's dying. It's going. At least the cricket as I know it is going. The concept of greatness as I knew it is finished. It's over. I think like, you have you know, maximum this generation and at most one more generation, which will have a proper shot at Test match records, which will have a maybe a shot at ODI records, and that's it. We're done after that. The concept of, of, of time, which was the greatest thing about cricket, that you could be good for 15 minutes and not make a difference to a match. Right? You could be elite for 15 minutes and it makes no difference to a match. It's going to disappear because T20 cricket, if you're elite for 15 minutes, you win the match. Right? No, no, you so only I, need to be elite for 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we've got a uh, so I, I see as I see it, I, I'm genuinely worried. I I think cricket, as I understood it, the concept of greatness, the concept of what constituted the sport is going to die in my lifetime. I, I hope it wouldn't happen in my lifetime, but I think it's going to happen in my lifetime. And, 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 and you bring up an important point because I've had this debate with a lot of people. They said, oh, uh, uh, what is wrong in cricket if cricket is being a fa franchise sport? So is football. I'm like, yes, but footballers don't play different format internationally. That's it's the right. same That's format. Right. They're playing it in franchise as they're doing internationally. So I have yeah, no so problem. County is that county is that kind of franchise, right? County is that exactly. So they play the four-day game. Yeah, absolutely. Ranji is that but, franchise? They play the four-day the four game. You you have to let me play devil's advocate here, Nikhil. And you and I are cricket romantics. We've talked about Test cricket till you know the cows come home, so to speak. Do people really have that kind of time in this day and age to spend five days to watch no, a test? No, no, I'm, so, I'm sorry. Why, why does it matter? Why? I, I don't understand revenue models that require eyes to be glued to all six hours of a test match. No, I don't I think love revenue models. Yeah, but no, my point, no, my point is not about revenue models. My point is not about revenue models. I think test cricket should be subsidized. Test cricket is our yojana. Like a, we should, ICC should treat it like a government scheme. And should subsidize it till eternal. I'm talking about people in the stadium, right? Because cricket is only fun if people are in the stadium, any sport. Like, and if you look, except India, Australia, and England, like my West Indies ki me matches dekhrada. First of all, this nonsense that BCCI has perpetrated that everywhere India goes, all games should be catered to when Indian TV viewers watch needs to stop. I was watching West Indies me T20 subhai no baje ho at nine in the morning. Right when India was touring West Indies last week, right? Who, how, I mean, who the hell is going to wake up at eight thirty in the morning and go and watch them? And I'll let me give a contra, a contrary example. NFL plays. NFL has games in London, three or four games every single year. The American football plays in London. They start at eight in the morning American Standard Time. In America, football is watched at twelve p.m. or after because it was said that you go to church, you come back, and then you watch football, right? But when they are playing games in Europe or Mexico City, they are playing in their time zone. So people in London don't have to like come and watch at ten in the afternoon. No, I, I think it's perfectly logical because the stadium environment is so important, as you said. 
people are going to only come to those stadiums at the time at which people generally come to a stadium they're not going to come at bloody 9 in the morning and you will not believe nikhil you know if you if you look at so i get both the feeds here right i i, I can stream uh, uh, through a couple of websites the indian feed also and i was listening to the indian feed and I was comparing it to the west indies feed the, the american feed that we get here right and one is with white noise and one is without that noise one is the stadium noise right it is sad if you listen to the feed without the stadium noise what we have reduced to cricket in other countries to comply with indian standard time is so freaking sad yeah i i i i won't contest that point uh, but on test cricket i, I mean I, the india south africa series that we lost to one was a fantastic series i loved that series. fantastic and they were reasonable crowds i mean we've also got to understand that these are smaller countries they've also had economic crises some of them it's difficult boss sri lanka the sri lanka australia tour right now had decent crowd yeah. and they were fun test matches they were really fun test oh. matches they were really Excellent. fun odi yeah. matches they were that was a good series overall not not but just sri lanka like i pakistan, i hated pakistan, the australia had sell out crowds throughout and it had to because australia was coming after decades for the first time but <laughs> sell out yeah, yeah. crowds no but i mean their pitches were horrendous so uh, but but my point is that india so f- there are two things that icc need to do i think and this needs to happen one they have to regu- there should be an icc regulator that actually regulates the pitches for test cricket i think we need to go beyond the point where each country has its own you know sort of things because they have to produce result oriented games if if i don't care if they're spin spinning tracks or fast bowling tracks or something the pattas that were on display in pakistan australia in the first test match they cannot yeah, work I, i i don't agree with you because i think home advantage should stay No, no, no. Home advantage is fine. Home advantage is fine. Yeah, but no, it's not. It's not. Your, what you're saying is it will make yeah, it will make cricket very monochromatic. I enjoyed that. So go win on a patta, yeah. Go try winning on a patta. Pakistan would have actually banked the idea that even on a patta hmm. they can beat Australia. It's just that the spinners didn't work out as well as they hoped. Right? Maybe. Usman Khawaja was fantastic. He was fantastic in that. Moment. That is, yeah. And, and the second point, and I'll come to you in a second. The second point, I was like, you have to have a subs. Just like ICC shares revenues with countries for, uh, you know, World Cup or something, share some revenue for subsidizing test test match cricket sales. Open it up for students. Open it up for, for free for people to come and watch. Okay, so I, so I, I've seen days on which they do that, and crowds obviously swell because of that. So you're you're sort of you're talking about aspects of Test cricket that honestly I'm fairly illiterate on. So I don't know how the revenues get shared. I don't know all of those things very well. Yeah. Right. But what I do stand by is I, I genuinely think our problem is not the, that that the I, ICC will not have an FTP with Test cricket in it. I just think the talent pool is going to drain away. Mm. So, and let's be even more fundamental about this. There is no Test cricket without a fantastic pool of fast bowlers. Yes. Right. And fast bowlers, if they're going to make 10x bowling four overs in a match, <laughs> right. And to me, T20 batting skills may have transferred into Test cricket. Mm. Right. You're batting fast, sometimes to your own detriment, frankly. Sometimes yeah. to your own detriment, and that is why I can't wait for the South Africa England series. I mean, this is going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Dean Elgar, Dean Elgar has come out and he's made certain comments saying, you know, this this sort of over aggressive brand of cricket, you will fail more times than you will succeed. Right? That's what yeah. his his view of all of this is. Right? Oh, so and he is somehow vindicated. Yeah, uh, England has. The point. The point. That oh, I sorry, boy. Yeah. The point I was trying to make is that uh, bowling skills from T20 cricket do not necessarily translate into Test cricket. In fact, they rarely do. The slower ball has very little meaning in Test cricket. Hmm. Right? The slower bouncer has very little meaning in Test cricket. You've got to bowl good line length and seam and swing in Test cricket, which has no space in T20 cricket because if you're bowling line and length in T20 cricket, you're disappearing. Mm. Right, so they are for bowlers. It's completely diverse skill sets. Look at the number of spinners <laughs> India is producing who are left-arm spinners whose only skill is to dart the ball into the legs of the batsman. Absolutely. Uh, 
absolutely right about it uh, by the way pardon pardon us guys for the last 30 seconds the video kind of froze but what nikhil was saying what you heard about the left arm spinner is this true what i was saying that dean elgar was justified because if you look at the scorecard this morning of south africa england uh, south england is 116 for 6 and uh, andrik nortier yeah. uh, the no no it's just the first innings england don't play first innings doesn't count with england anymore it's the second no 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 but, but yeah absolutely but no, that, that's not why i uh, meant the thing like i uh, uh, bearstow you know johnny bearstow was playing so well right on a wicket that was moving he left about uh, a foot between bat and pad and andrik nortier bowled him right now nortier had not had a good ipl but he comes back I, goes I, for a few tell you something but, about this baseball rubbish i did you watch those chases i watched those chases I because they were in the vacation right they were in my vacation yeah man new zealand bowled rubbish i was Absolutely. stunned at how badly they kept bowling short either outside off or leg to uh, best of best just kept hooking and root and root and root was cutting them and best was hooking them and how bad was our bowling in that test match pathetic but that is the kind of situation in which i look at jadeja and i think i cannot tolerate the fact that he's the one ashwin would have given you more wicket taking deliveries in that in that on that final day than anybody else the only thing more annoying than that was ravi shastri in the sky sports commentary box justifying this theory because he has to defend virat kohli till you know the cows come home saying i support this i support jadeja here Boss, you have to look at the game, the context, and things like that. And I'm like, and no, no, wait, he, Ravi, has to, he has to, he has to justify himself also. No, he was one of those who was picking Jadeja over Ashwin all the time. Exactly, time. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, and 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 Ravi Shastri is actually a treat to listen to if you listen to the hundred commentary. But I can't bear to watch the hundred. So no, uh, you know what? I I think I think his stint as coach has made him a better uh, commentator for sure. Absolutely, he talks, he talks more logic now. No, and I think very, I sp- he had become very, very monochromatic as a commentator. Okay. Everything, tracer bullet, this, that, and that's all. I mean, there was no real. No, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be brutally trolled for this, but I think the Sky Sports commentary box does that to you. Like, if you sit for six hours with Nasser yeah, Hussain, yeah. Michael Atherton, Michael Holding, and yeah, others, I, I, you know, I, I, they yeah. ask good questions. First yeah, as a as a port as opposed to Murli Karthik, Deep Das Gupta, and Anjum Chopra, I think your your tendency to do informed commentary is going to be a little better. No, no, and and also sitting with all of them with those Indian commentators that you mentioned under the chhatra chaya of its BCCI, if you step mm-hmm. an inch away. From what your given agenda is, you're gone. Mm-hmm. Like I happened yeah, to yeah. Sabu Gle. Right? Ha, so, unfortunately, and Harsha still Harsha is talented. In bad Indian commentary. Ha, no, no, absolutely. And Harsha, you know, keeps it keeps it entertaining still because he knows he plays around the line sometimes. But uh, these others are to, I mean, uh, they they are to BCCI what. Uh, Digvijay Singh is to Rahul Gandhi, unfortunately. So, <laughs> speaking of Rahul That's... Gandhi and the Congress, I'm I'm a Manchester United fan, and to, you know, being a Manchester United fan right now, I now know what it must feel like being a devoted Congress voter. Really, so, sheer hopelessness <laughs> of it all. So then, who do you think is the Cristiano Ronaldo in Congress? I don't know. Cristiano Ronaldo today is a liability. Right, he's a liability. So you can yeah. take anybody who was a high performer. I, for me, in the Congress, he, although he's left now, Cristiano Ronaldo, the Congress for a long time will always be uh, Kapil Sibyl. I'll, I'll <laughs> never, I'll never regard after zero loss theory. I'll never regard anyone else. And here's a sad bit: had he not gone as far as zero loss, I think they actually had a good case to make because there is no doubt one point seven six lakh crore was also absolute bullshit. Yeah, yeah, but. The problem is the solution to 1.76 lakh crores is not removing 1.76 from the first three numbers and <laughs> keeping the remaining. <laughs> that's what they indulged in. But uh, fantastic. Uh, Before that, ah, that's sorry? another that's another that's another issue to discuss at some point in time because absolutely very bad things that happened around that time that I, I don't think the Congress is entirely to blame for something that the Supreme Court did at that time. Uh-huh. 
No, no, I, no, no. Maybe, maybe that's the next discussion we should have about that. But it's, 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 it's a fascinating sort of thing. Ki, you know, activism. Kahan se shuru hua tha? And maybe 2012 was a watershed moment for that also, in terms of what the then justices had said and how they, they were perceived in the media and so forth. Because uh, it was that, that, uh, it was, that, that was, IAC that IAC was like a was like political guerrilla warfare, man. That movement came, yeah, yeah. it destroyed a government and it went away. Went away. Yeah. And so, the, so the theories at that time that it was essentially a sun-based movement must be absolutely correct. I don't even think it was, but I think I think there were organizations that may have done some, you know, helped it local value. But the 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 for me the most critic the the thumb rule of IAC was IAC worked in Delhi and IAC did not work in Bombay. You go to Bombay, people, boss. If if you don't have if you don't have a vi minimum viable if you don't have an MVP product, a maximum viable product that you can sell, Mumbaiers are not going to give a shit. And the reason why it worked in Delhi is a lot of these activists, your Prashant Bhushan, Kiran Bedi, all of these were Delhi-based activists, right? You take them. Anna Hazare is not a force to reckon with in Bombay. If you go to Bombay and you know. Uh, Boss, yeah, you are the not. Commonwealth games, the Commonwealth Games didn't happen in Bombay, right? We saw bridges collapsing, right? So no, 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 no. So, so no, that is a different thing. But I'm saying to to channel all that anger into Lokpal and have sort of a single thing, it was not going to work. Second, it didn't help the fact that in Delhi, both the government and the opposition were not working at that time. Like Delhi BJP was not really liked. If Sheila Dixit was hated in Delhi, still absolutely. Hey, I'm talking about them. You know, I'm talking about 2011. Like when they when they had selected Mr. Vijay Jolly to fight elections against Sheila Dixit in 2013. <laughs> so that's how seriously it was taken, right? In Bombay, the issue was completely different. Ki locally, there were actually formations that were doing some work and they were at fights with each other. So it's it's a very different and Maharashtra now has changed, but it was essentially a Congress state. There has Amongst the biggest states of India, Maharashtra has been the most pro-Congress state since independence or since it was formed since 1960. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, so that 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 is that is that is there. Or and Mumbai has been a sort of a you know there is a very famous joke that people would say that Balasaheb Thakre must have made a deal with Mr. Pawar that you take Maharashtra, give me Mumbai instead, and both happily coexisted for years and years because of that. But but anyways, we are way over time. Uh, Nikhil, any closing comments and recommendations for our? If you have read, watched something very interesting lately, and any point, any closing comments on cricket before you end, and we'll do a separate dedicated one hour on cricket. Uh, I you know I I'm a bit of a curmudgeon when it comes to this stuff. So there was that movie Darlings that came out with Alia Bhatt yes. and Vijay Verma, and I thought it was rubbish. Not rubbish. It's okay. It was all right. <laughs> Uh, I, it was too long, yeah. No, no, it's not too long. I think it, I, what I did not agree is people saying you glorify domestic violence. It's the opposite. I thought it was a good dark satire. It just isn't yeah. good enough. And she's she's a, like she's a bit of a mixed bag now. I, I sort of fell out in my sort of appreciation of her. I think with that Gangubai. Yeah, but I still think she, I, I will. I'll only watch everything when with Shefali in it because I'm a huge Shefali Shah admirer. No, no, for she, no, no. I think Alia is also excellent. Generally excellent. No, no. I'm Alia saying comparatively. Huh. What I don't understand is what Ranbir Kapoor is doing because I think he's a terrific actor. He's doing rubbish films, doing absolute rubbish. I don't know why he's picking doing pick, picking the wrong directors, picking friends over scripts. Unfortunately, possibly, something possibly. that his something his father, the outspoken Rishi Kapoor, had said multiple times. And then there's, of course, uh, our poor man, Amir. Yes. Yeah. Some of the, like, I, I, there are clips floating around. I haven't seen the film, but there are, and not because I'm boycotting it. Let me be crystal clear. I don't believe it's boycotting. <laughs> uh, I just, I'm, I have not watched an Amir film in a theater since Lagan because from that point onward, at some point, he became very sanctimonious in my eye, and I just didn't enjoy the guy as much as I used to. Yeah. But that's not to say he hasn't made good films. Like Tare Zameen Par was a really good film, but he's more of a sideshow yeah. in that film. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Then 
Three Idiots was a good watchable film. It's a, it's a, no, no, it's an entertaining film. Like I, I, I would like it has its flaws. Kind of the same genre as say Munna Bhai, and I think Munna Bhai is an infinitely superior film. Oh, absolutely, infinitely right? superior. Dangal, I think, was was good but not great. But again, I enjoyed it because the focus is on the girls and their wrestling and and all of yeah. that. Uh, so I'm not that enthused by him, but I saw seen those clips of his acting in this, you know, and he's trying to play a a mentally deficient character. He, he's just so over the top with some of these. Scenes. Not just that, not just that. What I hate is, and I'm a huge Forrest Gump. I this morning I was watching Forrest Gump clips, right? That famous Baba Gram Shrimp Company, which actually is a restaurant. It got so popular after the movie. It's headquartered in Houston, and there are 40 restaurants across US. They're called Baba Gram Shrimp Company, and most people don't know that it actually came from this. No, that's the problem. I mean, Forrest Gump is. I, I liken Forrest Gump. To the song "We Didn't Start the Fire," right? Because yeah. they're both a history lesson. They're both an excellent history lesson. Boris Gump's an excellent history lesson about America till the release of the film, pretty much to yeah. the release of the film, right? Yeah. And why is he chosen to be an idiot? And why does he go to Vietnam? And why is that of significance? Because that was the recruitment policy of the U.S. Army yeah. at that time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I hate that term, but that was the term. Translate that straight away to the Indian Army. It doesn't work yeah. that way. I mean, not just that. that. He had Lieutenant Dan, whom he saved from Vietnam, and they guys they have cast a Pakistani actor and then and they are selling chaddis. I mean, what? Like what? Okay, I don't know what that is. <laughs> this sounds really yeah. hot to me. Yeah, because Baba Baba wanted to do a, a shrimp business. They have cast that Bala Raju, whatever, instead of Baba, who wants to do a chaddi business, who just views that underwear everywhere. And they went, I have not seen the movie, but I have had friends who've seen the movie and I've read reviews and they've cast like some in war. He meets a Pakistani guy. Is he Pakistani? I don't know like who it is. I, that's the tweets I saw. But my point is, forget all that. Like, you know, you cannot... Forrest Gump worked because he was at he he caused those historic events. He was a guard at the Watergate. Because of him, this happened. Because of him, he goes to Abby Hoffman and makes this speech. You know, weird speech, right? There are a lot of events. Here, Lal Singh Chadda, from what I read, he's a bystander at all these events. He's not causing these events, right? So it's a very lazy adaptation rather than rather than being a cause of an event and you know uh, doing this and. Forget all all that. Uh, the ultimate thing is when you take a source material, you're not. The whole thing is not that you copy it frame by frame. You take the soul of the movie, and the soul of the film is his relationship with these women in his life, his mother, Jenny, and so forth, and how he very nonchalantly, you know, the Forrest Gump is essentially an exercise in butterfly effect. They get one choti choti cheese, and how magnificent things change, right? And I don't think they've captured that thing, but. I, what I want to no, recommend. I, listen, I'm a huge fan of Karina Kapoor. I think she's a really good actress. A really good actress. I'm sure she'll be very good in the film. Yeah. Also, Jenny's. I'm not a fan of Jenny in Forrest Gump. So I think anything will be better than that. I love Robin Wright. I've loved everything she's done since. But I really? think Forrest I, I Gump is. Robin Wright. What has she done? I, I, I House of Cards. Movie. House of Cards. Well, that that came very late in her career. That yeah, yeah, but. Late. but but no, that's my point, right? So her her previous avatar yeah, so and her. I want to this way to you at the time at which she's doing Forrest Gump. You don't understand why Robin Wright is in Forrest Gump. Like I mean, she is oh, not yeah. as significant yes. an actress at that time as she may be after, say, House of Cards. Uh, after the, but one last thing I want to leave us with is my recommendation. I watched a show called Gaslit, and if it's available in India, you guys should watch it with Julia Roberts. It's basically told from the perspective of Martha Mitchell, the wife of John Mitchell, who was the Attorney General during Watergate, and basically was leading the committee to re-elect Richard Nixon, and how Watergate happened. And it's told from people who are in the, you know, the seven people who sort of created Nixon and the whole Watergate conspiracy and what happened. It's a fantastic show. Like it's it's essentially a political thriller. You exactly know what's going to happen, but I did not know Martha Mitchell was doing this. And Julia Roberts is just back in form, hitting all those, you know, spots she did as an actor all those years ago. And Sean Penn plays John Mitchell, which I couldn't even recognize Sean Penn for the first thirty minutes. That's the amount of makeup and voice modulation that he has done. 
like he is just brilliant if they don't both uh, win the award this year, i don't know if you guys get z5 in the us yeah we do we do okay so z5 has uh, a loose adaptation on if you if you guys remember bihar politics of the 90s and 2000s there used to be a mohammad shahabuddin who was the enforcer absolutely yeah so it's, it's a loosely it's called rangbaz it's loosely rangbaz. based on mohammad shahabuddin's life yeah and, and is it very good actually in the series i think they've done it on other other such characters as well gangland characters very well mm-hmm. made but it's actually more than very well made the guy who plays mohammad uh, shahabuddin's character adaptation of that character he's acted mm-hmm. really well he's a very restrained good actor absolutely no i think it's a it's a uh, the, it's it just came out last year right i think or this year i think so I, I have no idea it's, it's my wife who discovers this stuff i have no idea i just sort of put my eyeballs man that's my job absolutely no that's a fantastic recommendation chalo we'll watch it for sure thank you so much nikhil you've been very kind with your time thank you we went a little bit overboard but always a fun discussion and guys please share follow like subscribe uh, we'll be back with more and uh, stay tuned next week for a new episode of mind podcast till then it's goodbye and thank you so much for joining nikhil